a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Last week, we talked about Molly Burkhart. She's a wealthy Osage Indian woman living in Greyhorse, Oklahoma in the 1920s. Over the course of a few short years, Molly's whole family has died under mysterious circumstances. First, her sister Minnie of an unknown illness, then her sister Anna from a gunshot wound, then her mother Lizzie from what seemed to be a slow illness much like Minnie's, and most recently, her sister Rita, whose house exploded, killing her and her husband Bill. Molly is devastated. All she has left now is her husband Ernest and their three children. But how long will they last? And this isn't just affecting Molly's family. It's happening all over Osage County. Dozens of Osage people and their friends have died under mysterious circumstances. There's a serial murderer or murderers on the loose in Osage County. That much is clear. But the local authorities are barely lifting a finger to root out the evildoers responsible. They don't seem concerned, and neither does the federal government. It isn't until the Osage Tribal Council offers to pay for a federal investigation that the feds finally start to unravel the rain of terror. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. So zooming out a lot here, before there was an FBI, there was the BOI. Boy. <laughs> the Bureau of Investigation. They definitely called it that back then. Boy. They said it, boy. Yep. In 1925, they actually just got a new head honcho. He's a stout 29-year-old named J. Edgar Hoover. Huh. Heard of him? Heard of him. He actually goes on to be a quite famous guy, even, even, Carrie, making an audio appearance in my favorite 80s movie, Clue. But at the time he gets this job, he was really, he was a surprise pick for the job. He replaces the previous director, William Burns, or as I like to call him, Mr. Burns, who you may remember from our last episode. He was a famous private eye in part because he knew how to bend the law. But that made him also a terrible federal agent. (laughs) His time overseeing the BOI was marked with scandal and corruption. And J. Edgar Hoover, he intends to change that. He wants to reform and legitimize the Bureau of Investigations. The Bureau hasn't really even investigated murder cases before. Up until this point, they were mostly looking at illegal goods like smutty books, uh, stolen cars, and contraceptives being transported across state lines, which we hate to see. But (laughs) in Yeah, God forbid it happens 100 years later. God forbid. Still hate to see it. In 1923, the Burns-led BOI was like, okay, let's put the porn, condoms, and cars on hold, and let's start looking into these Osage murders in Oklahoma. The Osage Tribal Council pushed hard for a federal investigation since the local authorities weren't doing anything to stop the slew of deaths or root out the culprits. The Tribal Council agreed to pay tens of thousands of dollars to foot the bill for an investigation. So, bankrolled by the victims of crimes, the BOI dispatched a bunch of agents. 
And they were not great. They were not top of their class, I gotta tell you. The first one lasted only a few weeks and then just gave up and was like, this is a lost cause. The next folks were worse, actually. They totally bungled the case. They tried to get a crook to go undercover for them. And they were like, will you do this for us? Um, We're gonna let you out of jail. And the guy was like, yeah, I'll definitely help you. And they were like, you promise? And And he was like, promise, pinky promise. honor, pinky promise. They let him out of jail, and wouldn't you know it, he just starts robbing and killing again. (laughs) But he had promised. Can you believe? So wait, they tried to solve the case by, and then they caused more murders? Wow. That's right. Talk about a bungling. (laughs) I'd call that bungled. (laughs) Enter J. Edgar Hoover to fix that. In 1925, two years after the bombing of Bill and Rita Smith's home and four years after Anna Brown is found dead, Hoover starts to assemble a team of men he can trust to finally carry out a competent investigation into the Osage murders. No more shifty private eyes. He wants educated men, men who wear a suit and tie. And look good. He's looking for like a Don Draper as opposed mm-hmm. to a what other guy there was. And no one wears a suit better than this hottie from the Houston office, 43-year-old Tom White. Finally, a white guy we can count on. Can we? Tom White has a long resume, and it's not always that flattering. He's a former Texas Ranger who fought wars against American Indians and later Mexicans at the border. Yeah, but he also left the Rangers because he didn't like all the killing he saw. He had right. a pretty strong aversion to killing. He's not a trigger-happy guy. He's more careful. When he joined the BOI in 1917, he got a reputation for being a straight shooter. Okay, listen, while that is a little redeeming, can I just say... This guy's resume, it doesn't make me feel that optimistic. Well, whether we like it or not, Tom White is the man J. Edgar Hoover appoints to lead the Osage investigation. Tom White approaches the case, and he looks at all of the information that we've told you thus far, and the biggest takeaway he has is he can't really see a clear pattern, right? It's like there's poisonings, there's gunshot wounds, there's houses exploding. It doesn't seem to make any sense. And White typically likes to work alone, but he can't just pick up and expect to know everything with all the information coming in. So he needs to work with someone who's on the ground. So he starts to look at the lawlessness of Osage County, and he's like, you know what? This place is kind of crazy. I think I'd be better off hiring street-savvy men who are a little rough around the edges rather than uncalloused college boys that work at the office. In short, he's like, I've got to go for street smart over book smart with this particular Mm -hmm. mission. And he needs people that can blend in, who can go days without sleep, who can win a fight if needed. So he brings on a couple people. He brings on a retired sheriff, a Texas ranger whose passions include fishing, game hunting, and man hunting. He brings on a former insurance salesman turned agent. He brings on John Wren, who is possibly the only American Indian in the Bureau. Which, by the way, good on you for bringing that in. And he's going to be essential in showing the Osage that the federal investigation can be trusted. Right. Well, all the agents start to infiltrate Osage County under their assumed identities. The former sheriff pretends to be an elderly cattleman. The Texas Ranger pretends to be a rancher. Wren pretends to be a medicine man. 
and the insurance salesman get this. Oh my God, I can't wait. It tends to be what? an insurance salesman. What a coup. I think they t- probably tried some improv with him and he just wasn't a good enough actor. So they were like, <laughs> you know what? Just play yourself. It's fine. Forget it. Just well, play yourself. Well, they say if you're going to lie, do small lies, right? Do half truths. He's basically so. doing 90% truths. I do wonder if he felt left out. Everyone else got a costume. <laughs> the first two cozy up to the king of the Osage Hills, Reverend William Hale, while the others spread out. While Tom's men are doing recon on the town, Tom decides to start looking into Anna Brown's murder, and he keeps coming up against dead ends. All of the record from the coroner's inquest have gone missing. The Justice of the Peace says that his office was broken into. And a lot of these half-baked theories left over from the privatized investigations When you look at them, it's like they're intentionally misleading. Do you remember Oda Brown? Of course Mm -hmm. you do. Anna's ex-husband, who Molly initially suspected. Well, he had an alibi for the night that she died. He was with another woman. And do you remember Rose Osage? The woman who was apparently so upset over Anna flirting with her husband that she shot and killed her? Well, her alibi checks out too. It turns out both stories were just made up. Yeah, completely. So it feels like someone was going around town bribing or threatening or some combination of both. And they're going after these locals to get them to make accusations against Oda, against Rose, against whoever. And whoever these people are issuing the bribes or issuing the threats, it seems like their goal is to derail this investigation, even going so far as to make up motives for people. Tom realizes that the deaths in Osage County, they're not happenstance. They are not the work of a single deranged killer either. This is a widespread conspiracy. It's like Tom starts pulling at this thread, and the farther he gets along it, the more he realizes this knot is huge. And he's realizing just how frightening this case is. And the people of Osage County have known this for years. At this point, Osage residents are absolutely terrified. Many have started hanging electric lights in their houses so that no one can lurk in the shadows. They're keeping their kids home, and they're trying to avoid leaving the house altogether. Even the sheriff is openly scared. He refuses to help in any investigation, claiming that he just doesn't want to get mixed up in any of it. And Molly, meanwhile, is not doing well. You know, she's endured years of loss at this point. Most of her family has died or been murdered. And she's scared that she could be next. Her most powerful ally, Reverend Hale, has vowed that he will avenge Rita and Bill. But at the same time, he's got his own problems. His ranch land recently had a massive fire. And so he's got his own kind of shit to clean up right now. So Molly retreats. She stops entertaining. She stops going to church. She gives her third child, Anna, named after her sister, a way to be raised by a relative. It just shows the insidiousness of this conspiracy because at the end of the day, this community is being totally affected. And in spite of Molly's isolation, she starts to think that she's being poisoned. It could be her diabetes that's making her feel sicker and sicker, But the Schoen brothers, her doctors, come by often and give her insulin shots, but it's just not helping her. Oh, poor Molly. Uh, It feels like really poetic and really sad 
that she lost her sister Anna, who she loved so much. Then she has this daughter that she names presumably after Anna, and it's this second Anna in her life. And because of all the grief, all the danger, she's put in a position where she has to give her up to and say goodbye again to this other family member. Well, it's like, I think at this point, she's like, what will keep my family safe? Like Mm -hmm. that is, it's just, it's, it's just so heartbreaking that this community is already dealing with such loss and grief. And because they don't have any answers, because no one is helping them, they don't even have closure. And the idea that like, if you're in a community where you lose your mom and your sister, let's Mm -hmm. say. I would think that in most communities that would cause your neighbors to sort of rally around you and be like, you have experienced the most painful loss. Like, let us do every, let's do a meal tray and let's like help you how we can. And instead it's like your neighbor also lost their mom and their sister and your neighbor on the other side of you lost their dad and their cousin. And everyone's losing people, friends and family. So even though they can comfort each other to a degree, it's sort of Everybody's like... Everybody's drowning. Everybody's drowning <laughs> in the grief because... And no one can see a way out, right? Right. When everybody's drowning, there's no one on the shore to pull you out. Right, right. And they're like throwing money at the shore. Please help us to like the Bureau of Investigation. It's like, please help us. Please help us. And they're just sitting there wondering who's going to be next. Because listen, it's... It's not a coincidence that a whole family dies. I'm sorry. It's absolutely not. Of course not. But what's scarier about that is when you say this is not a coincidence and this can't possibly be a single person doing this and it is a conspiracy, you don't know where the danger might come from. You don't know, uh, you know, you're on a walk at night and you don't know who to run from. That's why you're locked up in your house. It's like you become your own jailer because you say, I can't trust anybody. That is, to me, even as sad as losing all the people is losing any semblance of freedom or community that you would have. I mean, they've lost all their liberty, essentially. Totally. And it's so heartbreaking because this community is already small to begin with, right? 2,227 Osage Indians in Osage County, it's like, and, and they're each other's support group. And so to make you fearful of being out and around your friends, ugh. I mean, at this point, Molly has her husband, right? She has Ernest and he's there to sort of support her. But I have to say his brother is actually feeling the heat at this moment. Tom White is eyeballs deep into this case, and it has to be overwhelming to him, right? He has these false leads. He has these dead ends. So he decides to just start over from the very beginning, which is a very good place to start. So he goes back to the luncheon in 1921, the day Anna disappeared. Let's recap. Sure. So Anna takes a cab to Molly's luncheon. In the car on the way, she tells the driver she's pregnant, but doesn't say who the father is. At lunch, she gets into these drunken fights with everybody. Then lunch ends, and Brian Burkhart drives her home. Now, at around 8.30 that night, somebody calls Anna's house from the town of Ralston. So after hearing this, where do you think Tom goes? He wants to talk to the last person who last saw Anna, Brian Burkhart. 
Right after Anna's body was found, Brian had told local authorities that he dropped Anna off at her house around five o'clock that evening. Then he headed to meet his uncle, William Hale, king of Osage Hills, his brother Ernest, and a few relatives. And previous investigators did verify this story. They had traveled to Texas to the home of Brian's relatives who confirmed that Brian was indeed with them all evening. You know, they hadn't been particularly nice about it. We talked about it. These guys, we don't love these Texas relatives, but they were, say what you will about them, certain that Brian was there. Yeah, but if you were Tom, would you believe this story? Because Tom, he's not so sure. He's seen other leads in these reports that were never followed up on. Reports that Anna had been seen that evening in a nearby town of Ralston, in a car with a few white guys, but all of the witnesses seemed to have vanished as soon as they appeared, as if the local authorities had buried it. With the help of the embedded agents, Tom finally finds someone who was there that night. An old farmer, and this guy seems scared because when Tom goes to talk to him, at first he's sort of stuttering and kind of appears addled. But after talking to Tom and kind of sensing that he's talking to good faith agents of the law, he comes out with the truth. He admits that he did in fact see Anna that night. He remembers it because he and his other friend had discussed it numerous times. The old man says he saw Anna through the car window. And who was with her? Well, none other than Brian Burkhart with his white cowboy hat behind the driver's seat. And now from here, the night begins to unravel. Tom discovers that Anna and Brian were seen at the Ralston speakeasy until around 10. After that, they were seen in a Fairfax bar until 1. From here, the sequence of events admittedly does start to get a little muddy. Witnesses say that they saw a third man with them. Not Ernest, not Reverend Hale, not one of their relatives, someone else. And Tom, you better believe he intends to find out who. And just then, the case really breaks wide open. Pike, the private eye hired by Reverend Hale years ago to investigate Anna's murder, who had no leads whatsoever, no new information, he suddenly reaches out to the agents with shocking news. Through an intermediary, Pike tells the agents that he knows who the third guy is. And he'll tell Tom for a pretty penny. Tom is not particularly (laughs) interested in being extorted by this two-bit private eye. We told you guys, he's a straight-laced agent. This is not how he likes to work. He wears a suit for crying out loud. Yes, he's the real deal. Uh, Hoover's Bureau is all about modern evidence-collecting methods like fingerprinting. They're they're not into bribery. So instead of giving in to Pike's demands, a full-scale manhunt is launched. And eventually, Pike is apprehended committing highway robbery in Tulsa. So he gets his comeuppance. Yeah, well, I don't know if he's that trustworthy if he's committing highway robbery. When he's caught, it's obvious that he's nothing but a big old bag of lies. He has no integrity whatsoever. He doesn't know who the third guy is. He was just looking for some money. But even as Tom is nursing yet another dead-end disappointment, Pike suddenly offers something else, and it's even more tantalizing and treacherous. Yes, with agents breathing down Pike's neck, he confesses that he never really even investigated Anna's murder. Not at all. 
he spent those nine months in Osage County just shoring up Brian Burkhart's alibi, making sure that it was rock solid, even if that meant manufacturing witness testimony, intimidating locals, burying evidence, all that bad stuff. And who was making these demands of him? Well, the man who hired Pike in the first place, William Hale. Pike had repeatedly met with Reverend Hale and his two nephews, Ernest and Brian, to plot a cover-up. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I don't know if anyone else is shocked right now, but I am because it turns out the call was coming from inside the house. This doesn't make any sense. Reverend Hale had always been an advocate for the Osage people, but I guess blood is thicker than water. And maybe he was just using Pike to protect his nephews, Brian or Ernest, Molly's husband. I mean, if it was just Brian involved, how could Ernest sleep next to his wife knowing that his brother had a hand in her sister's murder? Yeah, horrible. Tom's agents start to gather more intel on this wealthy, uh, bespectacled rancher, Reverend Sheriff King William Hale. And some of this stuff is really surprising. The agents start to get the sense that people around town are afraid of this guy. I mean, we knew he was powerful, but as it turns out, he's not always been on the straight and narrow. The insurance salesman undercover operative who was also an insurance salesman, learns that a while back, Reverend Hale's farmlands had been torched, okay? They were set ablaze, intentionally, by his own workers, on his own command, so that he could collect the $30,000 in insurance money. Add arsonist to the list. Add it. You sheriff, rancher, Reverend King, arsonist, possibly murderer, conspiracy guy? Reverend Hale. (laughs) William freaking Hale. Tom now turns his focus to the 1923 explosion. Before he died, Bill Smith had been doing his own snooping, his own digging. He believed that Molly's family were murdered for their money. And maybe he had gotten too close to the truth. So Tom sends agents to speak to the people who had been around Bill before he died. The nurse that was there, the Schoen brothers, and Bill's lawyer. The Schoen brothers are initially adamant that Bill didn't say anything about who blew up his house. And Bill's lawyer agrees that this is true. But then he offers Tom something else. Although Bill did not say who he thought planted the bomb, he did say something else. You know, I only had two enemies in the world. And that those enemies were William K. Hale, the king of the Osage Hills, and his nephew, Ernest Burkhart. Molly's husband. Tom goes back to one of the Schoen brothers and demands to know if he'd also heard Bill say such a thing. And they really put the pressure on, and James Schoen admits that 
these were the words spoken by Bill. It's like, why the hell are we just hearing about this? Why did the Schoen brothers obfuscate? Were they in on it? Were they afraid of Reverend Hale? And beyond that, the real question is, did Reverend Hale or one of his nephews kill Bill to keep him from digging? And just as the picture is coming into focus, Tom gets another piece of vital information. A prisoner at a nearby penitentiary, Bert Lawson, let's call him Lawless Lawson, he makes a jailhouse confession. He claims to have set the bomb that raised the Smith household himself. And guess who paid him to do it? Reverend Hale and his nephews. Now Lawless Lawson tells Tom about the man who built the bomb. But when Tom tries to find him, he realizes he's already dead because shortly after the bombing, the bomb maker had been attempting to rob a local store and he got gunned down by the owner who knew he was coming. He had been tipped off that the robbery was going to happen by a really good Samaritan, William Hale. I guess he didn't want the guy talking to folks about the bomb that he just commissioned him to make. But why would Hale kill Bill and Rita Smith? And then it dawns on him. Bill was right all along. Money. It's always been about the money, oil money to be exact. In other words, the mineral trust head rights that all Osage are entitled to. Head rights cannot be bought or sold. That much we know is clear. They can only be inherited. And there were millions of dollars in head rights between the members of Molly's family. And there is one winding path to Hale inheriting it. Theoretically, the king of the Osage Hills would have had Anna killed first. Maybe he waited until after her divorce from Oda Brown to make sure that Oda didn't have any claim to that money. And then after her death, her head right would be divided between family. Molly, Rita, Lizzie. But remember, then Lizzie got sick and died, either of poisoning or of poisoning. The lackluster local investigation made it impossible to tell, but it was poisoning. Her head right went to her two remaining daughters, Molly and Rita. And I also just have to make a note here. Do you remember how Anna's will was changed right before her death? Mm -hmm. You know who her friend was? Reverend William Hale. I guarantee you he had a hand in that. Yeah, I could have definitely suggested it. So now the explosion suddenly makes all the sense. If Rita had died before Bill, her inheritance would go to him. But if they died at the same time, then all of it went to Molly. The entire family's head rights would be consolidated to Molly's estate. It was just an inconvenient accident that Bill had outlived Rita by a couple days, and therefore Bill inherited Rita's head right. But still... Millions of dollars in head rights now rest with Molly Burkhart. And who will be next in line to inherit those if she dies? Well, with no Osage family left, her devoted husband, Ernest Burkhart, that's who. So Hale used his nephews and probably a chorus line of criminals for hire to kill off Molly's family. And Molly's the only person who's left. And she hasn't been feeling well for some time. Is it possible she's already being poisoned? When Tom goes to pick up Ernest, he knows he has to turn him. It's the only way he's going to get Hale. Ernest is the weakest link. He's married to Molly. Maybe there's some actual love there that he could use. So oh, Ernest one is, would hope. One would pray. He has children with this woman. This is his family. 
Ernest is questioned for hours in a tiny room by various agents. And Ernest just tries to claim ignorance. But Tom, he can tell that this guy is breakable. Tom tells Ernest that there are several people who are willing to testify against him. And with that, eventually Ernest just can't take it anymore. Ernest tells them that he knows exactly what happened with the murders of Rita and Bill. And as Tom suspected, Ernest and Brian, they were not the driving force behind the horrible plot. They just did what their uncle told them to. Ernest tells Tom that he idolized his uncle and never really questioned his judgment. I feel like Ernest is apparently that kid who, when asked, if your friends jumped off a bridge, would you? His answer is a resounding yes. So when Hale pitches a plan to kill off every member of Molly's family, Ernest goes along with it. Okay, went along with is one thing. This guy helped plan it, okay? Like, you don't just murder, go along. Uh, murder his wife's whole family. Yeah, yeah you're not like, not... oh, I guess I'll go along. No, and not even that. He planned it, right? Like, Ernest helped Hale find men evil enough to build the bomb and then plant it in Bill and Rita's home. When Molly wakes up to the sound of the explosion and her and her husband look out the window and see a fire, she's scared. She doesn't know what's going on. He knew exactly what it was. Yeah, but Ernest won't talk about Anna's death. And I wonder, maybe he just didn't want to implicate his brother, Brian. Because Ernest is, you know, he's really, he's a family man. He cares a lot about family. Jesus. (laughs) Really just certain family members. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Ernest has already given Tom what he needs. So Tom and his men prepare to arrest Hale. And they're worried. This is a small town. Hale has a lot of pull. So they're worried that word might have gotten out that Ernest's confession is going to lead them to arrest Hale and then perhaps Hale will make a run for it. But what's even crazier is they're sitting there ready to arrest him. And guess who walks in? Hale himself. He's dressed as dapper as ever. He strolls into the local sheriff's office and he says, understand I'm wanted. (sighs) When Tom sits across from Hale, he has to fight the fury inside of him. Because on top of everything he already knows about this guy, he recently learned of rumors that Hale and Anna were sleeping together before her death. That monster may have had a woman killed who was pregnant with his own child. So Tom presents the evidence to Hale matter-of-factly. He hopes that Hale will see the writing on the wall and confess. But no, not Hale. He's unflappable. He tells Tom he plans to fight the charges and that he'll see him in court. And as he's being escorted away to the local jail, the newspapermen try to get Hale to talk, and he refuses to make a statement on the case, but he actually tries to make small talk with them, saying, cold, isn't it? It's like, yes, your heart is your cold Ice. dead heart. Ice cold. This guy is so smug. He has the confidence of a man who is about to be tried for a crime in a town where he owns all of the players. Hale's in custody, but knowing the reach that this guy has, Tom is understandably nervous. This guy is a king, reverend after all. He has so much influence over Oklahoma's institution that it just feels futile to try him in the state legal system. There isn't much of a choice. The state has the jurisdiction. 
Right. So the best thing Tom can do is just make sure that Ernest, that absolute ding-dong, is far away from his uncle's influence leading up to this trial. Hale clearly is not above witness tampering. Agent Wren, the only American Indian BOI agent, is charged with getting Ernest the hell out of town and hiding him until he appears in court. On March 12, 1926, preliminary hearings for the trial begins in Pahuska, the capital of Osage County. The courtroom is packed with Hale's friends and supporters, journalists, Osage, and of course, Molly. Molly was close to death just a few months ago, but since the investigators removed her from her home and sent her to a hospital far away from Ernest, she's been feeling better. Investigators suspect that she must have been being slowly poisoned. And maybe it was Ernest. Maybe he was putting something in her drinks. Or maybe it was the insulin shot she was getting from the Schoen brothers. Maybe that wasn't insulin at all. When everyone is in on it, to some degree, it's really hard to pinpoint a culprit. And even with all that's happened, Molly is still loyal to Ernest. She defends him when she's questioned by authorities. She loves her husband. She doesn't actually believe that he could have betrayed her. Molly's lost her whole family. He's all she has left. But now she sits alone in the courtroom, shunned by white people loyal to Hale, and shunned by the Osage disturbed by her devotion to Ernest. When Ernest walks in, Hale gives him the death stare. And Ernest knows that his uncle would likely try to have him killed if he testifies against him. So he's clearly thinking about that fact when suddenly one of Hale's lawyers stands up and says of Ernest, this man is my client. I demand to talk to him. The judge looks at Ernest and he says, he's not my attorney, but I'm willing to talk to him. Tom and the other federal agents are absolutely shocked. They know if Hale's lawyer gets Ernest alone, their testimony is just gone out the window. And just as they feared, the next morning in court, a prosecutor says Ernest refuses to testify. And once they lose Ernest and the proceedings continue, things are really not looking good for the prosecution. Witnesses are being intimidated, so accounts are getting recanted. PIs are hired to disrupt the proceedings. Ernest and Hale claim that the federal agents strapped them into chairs and administered electric shocks to them to try to elicit confessions. I mean, I can't imagine how Tom must be feeling. Here he was hired to do this. He's done all of this legwork, and right at the 11th hour, it's crumbling beneath his feet. The agents themselves are forced to get on the stand in their own defense. Obviously, these claims are completely ludicrous, but even so, they stick. And soon wealthy oilmen start lobbying to have Tom and the other agents fired. But Tom, he's not done yet. He's not down for the count. He has one more trick up his sleeve. There's one witness who has kept distance from Hale and could be the very one to put him away once and for all. Remember old Kelsey Morrison? He'd been a big-time bootlegger, right, in Osage County. And when federal investigators came to town, they zeroed in on him as the ideal informant. He knew everybody in the seedy underbelly of Osage. And old Kelsey Morrison, wouldn't you know it, was wanted on an assault charge. So the investigators used that to offer him a deal. He would be the government's spy, and in return, 
he wouldn't go to prison. <laughs> Assault, schmassault. Kelsey agreed, and he started feeding them information pertaining to the case, but only the information he wanted them to have. Right, because what they didn't know at the time is they had inadvertently recruited one of the conspirators themselves. <laughs> because for the entirety of the investigation, Kelsey had worked as a double agent for Hale, giving him all the information he had on the investigation. The investigators only learned of his involvement in the murder when Ernest initially confessed. Kelsey testifies that on March 21st, 1921, after Anna was dropped off at her house, she comes back out. She meets up with Kelsey and Brian and Brian's uncle, William Hale. The four of them, they go out drinking. A little while later, Brian, Anna, Kelsey, and his wife drive down to Three Mile Creek. Kelsey tells his wife to stay in the car. Then he and Brian carry a drunk Anna down to the creek. It is there that Brian holds her upright and Kelsey shoots her in the back of the head. Afterwards, Kelsey and his wife ate supper, went to bed, as if nothing strange had happened. And Kelsey's wife corroborates the story. She says that she'd waited in the car that night for about 20 minutes, and she hadn't said anything because Kelsey'd threatened her. Molly sits and listens quietly as her sister's final moments are revealed at last. After Kelsey Morrison testifies... Ernest Burkhart finally seems to find a little bit of his conscience. When in custody, Ernest slips a note to a deputy sheriff addressed to the prosecutor and asked to meet in private. The prosecutor goes to his cell that night and finds Ernest pacing anxiously, looking awful. He looks terribly, hasn't slept in days. He's not in good shape. The wife that he has betrayed has been haunting him from the courtroom seats. And his four-year-old daughter has just died of illness. He says, I'm through lying, Judge. I don't want to go on with this trial any longer. He feels helpless. He's been living under his uncle's thumb for years, but he just can't do it anymore. A few days later, Ernest goes to court and changes his plea from not guilty to guilty. He is sentenced to life in prison with hard labor. And yet, when he receives the sentence, he appears relieved. Molly watches as her husband is taken away in irons. Ernest does end up testifying against his uncle at trial and details how his uncle orchestrated the deaths of numerous Osage Indians, including all of Molly's family members, in order to take advantage of their head rights. Hale is also eventually found guilty of murder. And when the verdict is announced, his face goes from Eagerness, thinking he got a free pass to absolute shock. The king of the Osage Hills never expected to be dethroned. After the verdict, the New York Times published a headline saying, King of Osage Hills, guilty of murder. And underneath, they wrote, After months of work in which thousands of dollars were spent, the government today convicted William K. Hale, northern Oklahoma cattleman and alleged leader of a murder conspiracy that terrified the Osage tribe. They don't mention that the thousands of dollars spent was probably all the money that the Osage paid to convince the government into doing their job. And the conspiracy is never fully flushed out. The only other person who serves time for the dozens, if not hundreds, of Osage murders is old Kelsey Morrison and a hired gun, 
the Schoen brothers, who were friends with Hale and who seemed to mysteriously be at the scene of every single crime, looking into Anna Brown's death, taking care of Lizzie and Molly when they felt sick, and the last to see Bill Smith alive in the hospital? Well, they were never charged. The authorities grilled them at length about why Molly got mysteriously better after ceasing to receive insulin shots from them, but they just simply denied any wrongdoing, and that seemed to be enough. Brian Burkhart, who was definitely involved, he doesn't do any time at all. The prosecution believed his testimony was the only way that they could convict Hale and Kelsey, so he got immunity. There were so many mysterious deaths and obvious murders of the Osage in the 1920s. If there were better records of them, we could just do 20 more episodes outlining them. But the thing is, very few of them were actually investigated and documented, and Anna's is one of the few cases that even went to trial. Even of those convicted... Nobody served their full sentence. Hale only served 20 years in prison. And Ernest is paroled after only serving 11. After he's released, he tries to rob an Osage home and luckily goes right back to prison where he belongs. In 1966, he's pardoned by the Oklahoma governor and he returns to Osage County to live with his brother Brian. What? A monster. In what world would that man, should that man be pardoned? I I cannot understand it. I hope that house was getting egged by everybody. I mean, can you imagine going right back to the community you terrorized? No, no, but, but I think it's just the power he has as a white man to walk into this Osage community acting like he owns the place. In one of our sources for this story, the PBS documentary Osage Murders, an Osage novelist named Charles Redcorn is interviewed and points out that William Hale wasn't even a smart criminal. He was just brutal and operating in a landscape that enabled his brutality. So again, this is just the tip of the iceberg, right? It's like there was such a culture of exploitation in Osage County, and it's not just from the locals, right? The federal government ultimately billed the Osage $20,000 for investigating the dozens, if not possibly hundreds of murders that became known as the Reign of Terror. Like, imagine your people get murdered, and then you have to pay money to get their justice? By the 1930s, the guardianship program had been reformed. The Osage murders were tried, and a federal law was passed, making it illegal for anyone who was less than half Osage to inherit a head right, which is great because it means you can't just be a greedy white person who fakes loving someone and then murders them. Ernest, if you're listening, that was actually a dig at you, though I'm he's sure it went over your dead. head. Well, he's dead, um, so it for sure went over his head because he's for sure six feet under. Over his head, over his whole body. By the time that this was enacted in the U.S., We were entering the Great Depression, and the oil money was beginning to end. So what happened to Molly, the last remaining member of her family? Her life did improve. How could it not? Getting away from Ernest, it's bound to improve. She obviously divorced Ernest, and she remarried. She seemed happy with her new husband, and she no longer had a guardian controlling her finances. Her two surviving kids lived long lives, but were forced to reckon with the fact that their father was a monster who killed their family. Not only had he aided in killing all of their relatives, he also conspired to kill them. His son, James, remembered the night of Rita and Bill Smith's murder. 
he and his sister and his mom, Molly, were all supposed to go to the Smith's house that night, but he had gotten a terrible earache, and Molly insisted they stay home. When he eventually died in 1986, Ernest left instructions for his ashes to be spread around Osage Hills. Instead, James, his son, chucks them over a bridge, banishing him forever from Osage County. I can't believe what the kids in this story went through. I mean, I can't believe what everyone went through, but little baby Anna got raised by another family. She ends up dying when she's still a kid, and it feels like everything that set that in motion was her father's greed, and Ernest had no love for any of these kids. He was going to murder his kids because his uncle told him to? Which, again, Ernest, if your uncle told you to jump off a bridge, would you? Yes. You know what? Don't answer that. Don't answer that because here's the thing. You're going off the bridge anyway via a sack of ashes that I hope your son spit in. (laughs) I hope he did spit in them. I... Again, we've talked about it before, but I think the darkest part for me is the conspiracy not to just commit the crimes, but the conspiracy to keep the power away from the people and to avoid justice. At every step of the way, there were people in power trying to hurt, control, and steal from the Osage people. And it's just so hard. I can't imagine seeing a way out, right? It's like Mm -hmm. the mountain you have to climb to get away from this. It's just insane. And while we cover this case, I think it's important to note that we aren't talking about the other families who were affected by these disgusting criminals. But there were many of them. There were many, not even in just Osage, but in reservations everywhere. The only reason we're able to talk about this case and see any sort of justice was because the Osage had had these headrights, had had money, and had the means to pay to have an investigation done for them. I guarantee, like, this is, again, just the tip of an iceberg of just the horrible treatment of American Indians in our country. And I think I'm glad we're covering it, but it's just so dark. And I just, I'm I'm in awe of the perseverance of this community. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely one of the darkest stories we've ever told. And we've had our fair share of, you know, husbands and wives betraying and murdering each other. But this one does feel so much worse because beyond that relationship, there's so many people involved and they're involved for so long and there are so many bodies in their wake. It's like there is a whole group of serial killers who infiltrated a bunch of victims' lives by marrying them, by having kids with them. It's unthinkable and all in the name of greed. And I think it's important to note, too, that, like, the way that the Osage people were talked about in the media and how they were vilified for having money and how they were deemed incompetent, like, I think that's important to note that the dehumanization of this group of people helped make this happen, right? Without the dehumanization of these people, I I don't know if people would feel empowered to kill them to take away what is theirs. You know what I mean? No, but the government's coming out and saying, just so you know, they're not full people. They need yeah. guardians. They, they don't know how to use their own exactly. money. They don't. We've got to really watch them. And that makes it more palatable for so many to say, well, they're not even fully human. Look how the government is treating them. Now I exactly. feel 
well within my rights to take this away from them. Yeah. And again, it's like, it's, it's like a whole vicious cycle from the beginning, you know, it's just, it's heartbreaking and you know what, they deserve justice. And it's, I'm glad in this case there was a sort of justice, but frankly, it's not enough. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. We used many sources for this episode, but two that we would recommend are David Grand's award-winning book, Killers of the Flower Moon. Grand drew from the FBI files, historians, and interviews with the descendants of Osage living during the Reign of Terror. We also drew from the death of Sybil Bolton in American history by Dennis McAuliffe. Dennis is a former Washington Post reporter who discovered that his grandmother had died mysteriously during the Reign of Terror. His book does an amazing job of explaining the insidiousness of the Osage Guardianship Program. Lastly, we'd highly recommend the PBS short film, Osage Murders, produced by a native-owned production company based out of Oklahoma. It's a documentary, two decades in the making, and features interviews with members of the Osage tribe about the legacy of the Reign of Terror. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner. And Carrie Epimo. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2022, a and Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.